Welcome to the wicket. Hello, and it's time for a new episode of The Wicked, a podcast from Arab News, looking at the world of cricket locally in the Gulf, regionally across Asia and worldwide. I'm Brian Murgatroyd, and with me as ever to dissect events across the globe are Arab News columnist John Pike and Arab News cricket reporter Sebash Hamagain. Hello, gentlemen. Good morning. Good day. Good day, Brian. Well, in this episode, we'll be talking about the Gulf region's own major men's T20 tournament, the DP World ILT20, now underway to see if we can discern what's going on in its early stages. We pick over the wreckage of Pakistan's men's T20i tour of New Zealand. We discuss the first Australia-West Indies test, which produced the expected result, but not wholly in the way everyone was expecting. We look at issues for both Indies India and England as their five test series gets underway with crucial world test championship points at stake. We preview the Australia South Africa women's series across all three formats and reflect upon the first half of Ireland women's white ball tour of Zimbabwe. We wrap up the India Afghanistan and Sri Lanka Zimbabwe men's T20I series both of which have finished since our last recording and we ask John and Sebash for their highlights of the past week in cricket. So, as ever, lots to cover. Let's get started. And we begin with the DP World ILT20, based across three venues in the UAE. It started in Sharjah on Friday, January the 19th, and at the time of recording on Wednesday morning, January the 24th, there have been six matches. John, is it too early to spot any on-field trends so far? What's caught your eye? Well, first of all, every team which has won the toss has fielded. Clearly, they feel there's a distinct advantage in in batting second, and and four of the teams have actually um, achieved that. So I think this is probably a trend that's going to um, stay. In terms of performances on the pitch, Gauss from South Africa got uh, a very quick 90 to win the match, and Johnson Charles also got um, got big runs and uh, to um, guide his team to a, to a win with some help from tail enders uh, not much from david warner um, he may have to hurry up because it seems he's wanted back in Australia for the T20 series versus the West Indies on um, February the 7th. There's also been some pretty tight bowling from uh, Ali Khan, uh, from Chris Wokes, and uh, of course, unsurprisingly, from Trent Bolt, who I think in the last match um, claimed three for 14. And uh, by his own account, seems to, be, uh, seems to be bowling a bit quicker, which um, is a daunting prospect. Sebash, the two finalists last year, the Gulf Giants and the Desert Vipers, they've tasted defeat in their second and first matches of the tournament, respectively, while the Abu Dhabi Knight Riders, who were bottom last season, by some distance won their first match. In fact, every side has lost this season already. Are we seeing a levelling out of the teams after last year when the Giants and the Vipers were comfortably the best? If you ask me, I think Vipers and Giants are stronger on paper this season too, but uh, others have got some good players in the roster and the increment in number of players will help the squads to experiment on new players as well. I think uh, the teams are trying hard to get the balance. And if you ask me, I think Emirates have two good squad as well and the local boy Wasim is firing up. So I think it's a good sign for them that the local player is having some impactful performance as opposed to other teams. 
Yes, Mohammed Wazim uh, doing a fine job thus far for MI Emirates at the top of the order. John, we spoke on last week's show about the issue of crowds, and so far they've been encouragingly good. What have your impressions been? I think it's a, a bit early to tell. One hopes that with this second edition that uh, the marketing is uh, is working, that more people are getting to know about the tournament. And uh, as we talked last week, with four Pakistanis, um, or five Pakistanis around, maybe that, uh, that message gets out to the uh, Pakistani diaspora that maybe some of them will be encouraged to um, uh, to show up. And Subash, the super sub has been in place and all the teams seem to be using it in the same way. If they bat first, then a bowler comes in for the second innings. And if they bowl first, then a batter does likewise. Doesn't this mean that this tournament has simply become 12 aside? Indeed, I think the way it's being used, they should rename it as the 12 player now. Uh, this has also increased a uh, spot of specialist batter or bowler in the team. Uh, really, have we seen an all-rounder getting subbed in or sub out? Uh, I think going forward, we may see the impact in auction or draft as well. Uh, personally, I feel this will mean that uh, teams won't will struggle with the fifth bowler quota that uh, has been the game-changing uh, in T20 format. So I think bringing one extra bowler uh, or one extra batter will be helpful for the team. And uh, I think it's going to be five bowlers with four overs for the most of the t- time going forward with uh, in- introduction of this super sub. Well, the group stage goes on until February the 11th and we'll be chatting about the tournament again in the next episode. Let's talk now about New Zealand against Pakistan and the 2020 International Series has wrapped up in New Zealand with Pakistan securing a consolation victory in the final match, easily defending 134 for eight by bowling the home side out for just 92. But that didn't alter the fact that for New Zealand, it was a comprehensive series win by four matches to one. And aside from the continuing injury issues for Kane Williamson, it was a terrific boost for them ahead of the ICC T20 World Cup in June. Sebash, New Zealand are the perennial nearly men of world cricket and they reached the final of the T20 World Cup just over two years ago when it was in the UAE. Does this result against Pakistan suggest they have it in them to finally go one step further this time? Brian, as I previously have been saying that in New Zealand, they turn up for the ICC events regardless of squad strength and paper. And this time, I think they have individuals in place too. Uh, credits where it's due to the selection panel for making right calls. But I think Pakistan are one of the best in the format and... Their demand in the global leagues can prove that too. But uh, New Zealand came out as best uh, in uh, all the game uh, apart from the last game. And looking at New Zealand, I think I'm very excited with their batting firepower. And in World Cup, I think they have comparatively easier group. But uh, if they start well against West Indies and Afghanistan, I think they'll be hard to stop for other teams in going forward. John, let's talk about Shaheen Shah Afridi, the Pakistan captain. He said afterwards that the series was all about building for that T20 World Cup. And two thoughts occurred to me off the back of that. One, given how badly they were beaten, he would say that, wouldn't he? And two... Did they make any progress in that building process? Yes, he would say that. And I don't think they made any obvious progress. And one can only guess uh, the relationship between Shaheen and, and Babar. 
I think moving Rizwan up to opening was a good move. But I think it's um, can't be very easy for the players having frequent changes in coaching staff. And there's rumours uh, of unhappiness over Mohamed Hafiz's coaching style, which appears to be um, very autocratic. And there could be more changes around the corner. So I think they need to settle themselves down well in advance of the, uh, the World Cup to, to have any real chance. Well, John, you talk about settling down there on the field, but off the field is a real state of flux at the moment. The end of the series coincided with the news that Zaka Ashraf has stood down as chairman of the Interim Management Committee of the PCB. Shah Kawar, the advocate of the Supreme Court of Pakistan and election commissioner of the PCB, has assumed the powers of PCB chairman. He's promised elections for that role as soon as possible. But I just wonder, Sabash, has this state of flux in Pakistan cricket contributed to the series loss on the field or are the two completely unrelated, do you think? Brian, I'd take this the other way around. I think the team is not performing. Uh, means it's only good that Zaka leaves early. I think he's going to go anyway. And so far, nothing has gone right on and off the pitch. Uh, he was supposed to go anyway and the resignation will mean there will be numerous changes around the team now. So I think it's better to have things sorted as soon as possible with the World Cup in mind. And the team that needs to settle ahead of the World Cup showdown, I think uh, it's going to be a tough rebuild ahead. Well, Pakistan are always capable of doing something remarkable, it seems. But, John, on the strength of this series, can you see them challenging in the the T20 World Cup, I wonder? Bear in mind, the tournament will take place in the Caribbean and the USA, so conditions will be completely different to the ones they encountered in New Zealand. As we just discussed, I think it depends on um, if they can sort out the coaches and the coaching and also governance and create an environment in which the, the players can flourish. And at the moment, that doesn't look very promising. Well, it's uh, a build-up now for uh, both these teams towards that uh, ICC T20 World Cup. And of course, that takes place in the Caribbean and the USA starting in June. At the time of recording this podcast, the second test between Australia and the West Indies, a day-night game in Brisbane is just around the corner, and we'll deal with it in detail in the next episode. But in the meantime, let's chat about the first game of the series in Adelaide. Australia was expected to win it comfortably, and the margin of victory by 10 wickets in just two days and a session suggests they did that, and more besides. But the West Indies, with three debutants in an inexperienced side, were competitive, They uh, had issues, though, in failing to overcome the Australian bowling juggernaut, with Josh Hazelwood taking centre stage this time, 9 for 79 in the match for him, as the visitors were bowled out for 188 and 120. That said, Australia may have been in some trouble, but for Travis Head's brilliant 119 in 134 balls, it was one of only two scores of 50 or more in the match, and the only one by an Australian batter. John, the headline grabber in the match, wasn't actually Travis Head, even though he was named as player of the match. It was a West Indies player. Shamar Joseph, batting at number 11, made a classy 36 in the first innings, 15 in the second. He took five for 94 in Australia's first innings, including a wicket with his very first ball when he dismissed Steve Smith. And then he forced Usman Kawaja to retire hurt 
when a short ball hit the batter's jaw. It was quite a debut, wasn't it? Especially as it was only his sixth first-class match. It certainly was. And you say his first wicket was out of Steve Smith. I think West Indies need to find a few more jewels in the crown like that, given the fondness of the experienced players to um, uh, for, for T20 franchise cricket. Hopefully they can find a few more. Yes, uh, let's hope uh, that is the case. Sebash, Australia, while well, they got Cameron Green back into the side by batting him at number four, while Steve Smith shifted up to open. Both did very little with the bat, though. What are your thoughts about the changes, or is it simply too early to judge? Just one innings, basically, for both of them, although Steve Smith was undefeated in that very short chase in the second innings. Brian, I don't think Smith is the long-term fix, uh, as there were rumours after Warner's departure. Uh, with Kawaza aging, I think uh, Australia is looking uh, for this short period of time. Uh, personally, I like Smith being... Given all the challenges in his already dynamic career, it will be interesting to see how things go. But uh, for Green, I think he has shown some games in the past. And since Mars has been contributing well with the bat, I think uh, Green is there as bowling option too. I think this would be a right call for the balance of the team. Well, Australia now has the chance to go through the home test summer with a 100% record if they can win in Brisbane. And we'll chat about that next time here on the wicket and we'll also wrap up the men's big bash league next time as the final is taking place on the same day we're recording this podcast with brisbane heat playing the sydney Sixers. the first test between india and england gets underway in hyderabad on thursday the 25th of january and we'll have a comprehensive assessment of the action in our next episode but ahead of that test And at the start of a five-match series that features points towards the World Test Championship final qualification, let's look at the two sides and which one we think will come out on top. John, both sides are missing key batting personnel. Virat Kohli has pulled out of the first two tests and Harry Brook has withdrawn from the whole series, both for personal and unannounced reasons. Which loss do you think will be felt keenest? Well, it's a sad time for Brook, obviously, and most of his career is ahead of him, um, whereas Coley is not, of course. Both will be missed. I think Coley probably most. But each team has players to, to step in and step up. For England, it may actually resolve an issue with Bairstow in as a specialist batter and Folks as a specialist wicketkeeper, which I think is really much needed in Indian conditions. He's also a, a level-headed batter. There's also a note uh, about um, Dan Lawrence being called up as a result um, because he um, he was a wild card into IOT 20 um, and I should think he only had about five minutes um, Dubai before he was whisked off again. Yes, he played uh, the one match for the Desert Vipers, batted at number three and uh, took a wicket actually with his off spin, but uh, he's uh, short and sweet in terms of his stay with the Vipers in the IOT 20. They'll certainly miss him. Rajat uh, Patidar the uh, Madhya Pradesh batter. He's been called up in place of Virat Kohli in the Indian squad. John, I'll just ask you a follow-up as well in terms of missing personnel, because England are also missing 20-year-old spinner Shoaib Bashir after a delay in processing his visa. He's had to return to the UK from the UAE 
where England were holding their pre-series training camp. He's got to submit his passport to the Indian High Commission in London in order to try and get his visa. He's going to miss the first test. What do you make of all that? It really is, um, I think, completely unnecessary rattling of the sabre by Indian authorities and for someone of, of Pakistan origin. I think it should be it should be kept out of the game, but of course it's, it's easier said than done. Um, it's interesting that Rian Ahmed is, uh, is, is in, but he has a, um, a I think a, a visa which is valid from, from a previous trip. So I guess that it will get, um, get resolved, but um, uh, it's another show of strength. Maybe uh, maybe the Indians are actually worried about what, um, what our new Mr. Spinner might be capable of. Let's see what he can produce as and when uh, he actually gets to uh, gets to India. Subash, India's record at home, it's remarkable, isn't it? They haven't lost a series uh, on their own turf in more than 11 years. Does England playing basketball have any chance of overturning that run of form? Uh, it's really tough, uh, especially with where the matches are being played in this series. I think India's spin-heavy attack will prove too much. Uh, this will be the toughest test uh, for baseball. And if you ask me, India themselves don't have strong test batting lineup without Puzara and Rahane. So if English bowlers can step up, I think it will be helpful for the batters uh, to uh, deliver themselves. But... Uh, more than England's batting, I think uh, I'm looking at their bowlers. If they, can, if they are successful to step up, I think their results will go their way. It's a big call, Sabash, but uh, let's just hope for an entertaining series. But John, from England's perspective, it seems there are a lot of questions they've got to answer ahead of the series. We could spend a whole podcast, in fact, trying to answer them. Ben Stokes' fitness after his knee surgery post-Cricket World Cup. There's the fact James Anderson hasn't actually played since the end of the Ashes series. Uh, there's spin depth in support of Jack Leach. Uh, we've mentioned, obviously, 20-year-old Shoaib Bashir not being there uh, with that delayed visa. The pitches are expected to turn as well. Surely... John, if England can even win a test, that would be something of a triumph, wouldn't it? Well, there's a whole chapter to be written in this series. I'm not sure if it's going to be a tragedy, a comedy or an epic success. I wouldn't be at all surprised if England get a victory along the line once they've settled in. I think they're motivated. I think they're still hurt from the um, performance in the World Cup in, in India. I thought it... Um, a little ironic of uh, Raul Dravid when um, he said about the pitch in Hyderabad, he said it's going to be dry and it might spin a little bit. I think that's probably a portend of, uh, of what's to come. Um, I'm quite optimistic for England, actually. Well, let's see if uh, your optimism uh, bears uh, some fruit mm. and bears, uh, bears even one test. Let's, uh, let's keep our eye on that one uh, because, uh, Sebash, R. Ashwin, he's on the brink of 500 test wickets. Ravindra Jadeja, he's in the squad too. Aksar Patel, who ripped through England with regularity two years ago, is also around, as is the left-arm wrist spinner Kuldeep Yadav. I just wonder, though, do they need to produce rank-turning pitches or, or are they good enough to win on any surface? Well, in India, the formula is going to be spin to win. Uh, England don't have elite spinners like India do, which is enough to suggest how the pitch will be prepared. So if Bashir's exclusion have uh, added to the bow and to add up their bowling potential, I think all uh, three are good batters as well. So even if the pitch doesn't favour as much, uh, these players will be handful. Uh, India were gutted not to take the test championship match in June and there were suggestions after that game that uh, there should be multiple matches uh, because the surface didn't favour them and all. So they have to make the team good enough to perform in away conditions too and uh, I think in away conditions having all three is not possible. So in India they'll carry on the way they are but if they have to be dynamic I think uh, they should be looking at other options. Well, we'll have a roundup of the first test from Hydra bad 
on our next episode. South Africa's women are in Australia for a month-long tour across all formats with three 2020 internationals, followed by three one-day internationals, and finally a test at the WACA in Perth. Australia is on the crest of a wave, of course, after a successful tour of India, where after losing the only test match, they then bounced back to win both the ODI and T20I series. A measure of Australia's form and the depth of talent they have at their disposal is that leg spinner Alana King, who would surely walk into every other side in the world, can't actually find a place in the T20I squad that starts the tour. South Africa, for their part, look on paper at least as though they should be competitive, with Marazan Cap included to bolster the batting and bowling, and Chloe uh, Tryon fit again after a groin injury. The side is captained by Laura Volvart. John, in T20I terms... This is a repeat of the World Cup final of just over a year ago. South Africa was swept along by home support then to reach that final. Can they be competitive this time, do you think? Yeah, I think they've got the work cut out um, with a new captain and fresh faces in the squad after some retirements, notably that of uh, Shevlin Ismail. The captain's is a bit of a puzzle. Suni Luce stepped down several months after the World Cup final. I think one of the things I liked about her, she was remembered for a famous line after the after the final about the Aussies, saying that you guys are annoying. You've been inspiring the world of cricket for so long and you show your class time and time again. I think we can expect more of the same. I mean, some thought that Chloe Tyron would be a logical choice, having been vice-captain, but it seems that she has not to be considered. And the coach, um, Hilton Mureng, has been in post for 11 years and there have been murmurings of players wanting a change. Anyway, Bovard has the nod, as you say. She's very inexperienced in captaincy matters at this level, though she does have 10, I think, of the world, including herself, of the World Cup final team in the squad. It's going to be tough for them. Yes, it certainly is into uh, the backyard of the number one side in the world across uh, the formats. Just wonder, Sebash, can anyone stop the Australian juggernaut? I think not just yet. Uh, the team is at the absolute best. Uh, each and every player are contributing from the end. And we saw that in the India Tour too. They pinned the identity of world champion team and just carried it along. Uh, I think at the home turf, they rarely give opposition any chance. And that's going to be the case in this tour too. Well, we'll talk about the start of the series, which gets underway with T20Is in Canberra and Hobart on the next episode. Ireland and Zimbabwe's women have been battling it out in white ball action in Harare, with the matches being crucial to both teams who find themselves in the global qualifier for the T20 World Cup, with that qualifier set to take place in Dubai later this year before the main event in Bangladesh. The ODIs started the tour and Ireland won the series 2-0. The first two matches were rain-affected, Ireland winning Game 1 by 10 wickets, while the second match was tied, and then in Game 3... Ireland easily defended 180, bowling Zimbabwe out for 99. Cara Murray of Ireland was the standout performer, taking 10 wickets across those three one-day internationals with her leg spin. John, I just wonder, do you see progress from both sides? On the evidence of what they've produced in the ODI series and their recent form before that, how close do you think they are to, say, Sri Lanka and Thailand, who are probably the favourites to progress from that 10-team T20 World Cup qualifier? Well, looking at those teams, six of them are bunched between 8th and 15th, I think, in the, in the women's T20i rankings. So it's pretty tight. 
It seems to me that Ireland are making progress based upon the performance in Zimbabwe. And they did get the better of Scotland and the Netherlands last August and, and October. So I think they're, they're in with a shout, whereas it looks to me like Zimbabwe are at best treading water. Yes, it'll be interesting to see what happens in that qualifier. But of course, we've got the, uh, the T20Is, which both sides will be very heavily focused on because of that qualifier later in the year. They're on uh, January the 26th, 28th and 30th. Subash, what have been your takeouts from the One Day International Series between the Zimbabwe and Ireland women's teams? I think the rain hampered game uh, a bit uh, throughout the series and Zimbabwe, I think they gave Ireland a run for the money in the second match. Uh, Ireland could have easily walked away with the whitewash if not for that consecutive wicket in the last two balls. Uh, but I think Zimbabwe had a good batter in Ashley Nadaria who stand, stood tall and give them any chance in the game. But I think in shorter version, Zimbabwe will be more competitive and uh, with uh, only four overs uh, of uh, pace uh, coming up from the Ireland, I think they'll be able to tackle the game and make the series more competitive. Well, before we leave the subject of Zimbabwe, it's worth uh, touching upon the final match of the men's white ball tour of Sri Lanka, which took place after our previous podcast with the three-match T20I series on the line. Sri Lanka steamrolled Zimbabwe by nine wickets with nine overs and five balls in hand, bowling out their opponents for just 82 as Wanindu Hasaranga continued his fine comeback after a long-term injury with four for 15 in his final match before heading to the ILT20 to join up with the Desert Vipers. John, for Zimbabwe, we saw glimpses of promise, but just one win from the five completed matches. Remember, one of the uh, three one-day internationals was washed out. Things went pretty much, I think, as we thought they would before the series, didn't they? Yes, they did. I think Zimbabwe have got a lot of hard yards to put in to, um, to recover themselves. And the, you know, the captain's uh, comment uh, that we're desperately trying to turn things around and that I think you need that desperation to do so does smack very much of desperation. Uh, I'm not quite sure what their next steps are going to be. Yes, uh, as you say, John, it's a long road back for Zimbabwe after a disastrous 2023 when they failed to qualify for the 50-over World Cup and also failed to qualify for this year's T20 World Cup as well. Subash, what do you think the series means for Sri Lanka? Their recent batting frailties were once again occasionally on show, but they welcomed back Hasaranga, as we've mentioned, from a long-term injury, and they reintegrated Angelo Matthews into the squad after a lengthy break. Are they well-placed for that T20 World Cup on this evidence? Yes, I think uh, in Matthews and Asaranga, they were the best performance in this series. Uh, Matthews had some messages after the series too, so he's looking at the World Cup spot, and I think he'll certainly make it... Uh, Regarding Asranga, we've all seen what he can do and he's made the excellent comeback from the injury. So he'll be handful with Netherlands and Nepal in the same group as well. So Sri Lanka looks to be in well-placed, but uh, I think the franchise league will help their players individually to bolster up the squad ahead of the two to US and Washington Well, since our last episode, there's been a remarkable 2020 international between India and Afghanistan's men's teams. The match in Bengaluru was the last of a three-game series, the first two of which were routine wins for India. But in Game 3, after India made a seemingly impregnable 
212 for four, having been 22 for four, mind you. Rohit Sharma made an unbeaten 121, and Rinku Singh, 69 not out from 39 balls. Afghanistan then matched that score with uh, Gorbadin Naib helping uh, the side score 16 from the final over to force a super over. Afghanistan then scored 16 from their super over, including two overthrows that deflected off Mohammed Nabi, only for India to match that. And so we had a second super over. And this time India could make uh, only 11, but it was too many for Afghanistan, with Ravi Bishnoi taking two wickets and three balls at the start of his over to seal the win and a 3-0 series success for the hosts. Sebash, what did you make of the, the drama of that match? I thought India won the match after that carnage from Rohit and Rinku, but uh, credit to Afghanistan for pulling the match back. Uh, the drama towards the end was a bit hard to handle. Uh, Gulbuddin Nai with that innings, I think he'll have suitors around the franchises now. Uh, India will be happy to have the super over bowlers tested, uh, but I think Afghanistan would be gutted uh, after lose, getting away the match uh, coming so near. Yes, Gulbuddin Nai, one of the... Uh... Few remaining players, along with Mohammed Nabi, who played for Afghanistan when they were in World Cricket League Division 5 well over a decade ago. And look where they are now. Absolutely remarkable. John, Afghanistan will surely take a lot of confidence from that final outing against a side full of T20 experience, thanks to the IPL. Yes, yeah, Sebastian, that is quite an extraordinary finish. I think they'd have taken a lot more confidence um, had they won, but it's encouraging they got so close after being nowhere near in the in the other two matches. Well, finally, gentlemen, we'll continue the trend of picking a highlight or something that caught your attention from the past week in cricket. What has uh, that been? Sebastian, I'll start with you. Mine has to be the 19 World Cup. Uh, I was so happy to see young Arjun Kumar's innings against New Zealand. But equally sad the way our death bowlers gave away runs. Uh, I think Snaith Reddy was all over them. And if not for that hammering in, uh, we could have challenged them. So looking forward. Uh, Sebash uh, still uh, waving his Nepal flag there and uh, hoping for better things in the Under-19 Cricket World Cup, which is ongoing. And we will cover it in depth in a later episode. John, what's tickled your fancy? Well, we've already mentioned um, one thing that did, and that's uh, Shamar Joseph claiming Steve Smith with his first ball in Test cricket. But I think even that um, was overshadowed by um, Josh Brown of the Brisbane Heat. Caught 140 out of 192 in 16.3 overs, which is a pretty sensational effort, I have to say. Uh, that takes some doing. Yes, a remarkable story, Josh Brown, very late to professional cricket. And he actually makes his own cricket bats as well. So uh, he's made a pretty good one there by yeah. the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, remarkable effort from uh, from him. And uh, as I've mentioned, we'll cover off the, the whole of the uh, Big Bash in our next episode. Well, that's it from the wicket for this uh, time around. We'll be back soon with more cricket chat from the Gulf region, Asia and worldwide. Please don't forget to like, subscribe and comment on all that you've heard wherever you get your podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback and let us know if there's anything you'd like us to feature in future episodes. For now, though, this is Brian Murgatroyd along with John Pike and Sebastian again saying thanks so much for listening and we look forward to your company again next time.